0: We talk a lot about transferable lessons here on AI and industry. We'll take ideas about natural language processing that might be used by a global bank that we're interviewing and extrapolate how those might be applied elsewhere. We'll look at machine vision applications for self-driving cars or even in the defense sector and imagine where that might fit in retail. And again, opening up the capability space of AI is the purpose of the show. I'm firmly of the belief that if executives in life sciences just talk to other life science execs at conferences, uh, they're pretty likely to get behind in in the fast-moving world of artificial intelligence. And there's something that essentially all of the older established sectors should be tuning into, and that is the firms that are positively dominating artificial intelligence innovation. And you know who those firms are. Those are your Facebooks, those are your Googles, those are your Amazons, and in Asia, those might be your Baidus and your Alibabas. But the fact of the matter is we have to pay attention to what they're doing right, because these are the firms running the show when it comes to the cutting edge of AI and applying AI, and other businesses are at best sort of modeling and leveraging what they're doing oftentimes. I think that dynamic will change, but clearly there are winners in that game, and Facebook is one of them. Uh, This week, we interview a leader in Facebook. Jason Sundrum is the lead of World.ai at Facebook, which is one of their efforts to work with public data around roads and population and other projects of that kind. But Jason's also highly involved in the Boston office here, where Facebook will, and not terribly long a time have something to the tune of 650 folks. From what I gather, many of them focus on data science and artificial intelligence. Some of you have been listening to the show long enough to know that we were in Facebook headquarters in the big Building 21, which is chock full of thousands of folks working on AI-related stuff. But this is sort of the Boston office, and it's a little bit of a different ballgame and also a little bit of a different focus. Last time we talked about personalization in AI with a fellow by the name of Hussein Mahena who was uh, lead of core machine learning or head of core machine learning at, at Facebook at the time I think he's now at Google and this time we talk about two topics that all established sectors need to be focusing on one of which is how do we build AI and data science teams not just get the money to pay the really good people. But how do we build the right composition of different skills? How do we assess what the needs are for an AI team that we can imbue into a business problem and actually make a difference? How do we think through that? And Jason provides some pretty robust insight on that topic. And the second topic is, how do we pick AI projects? When we're within a business, we're looking at our business opportunities, we're looking at maybe where artificial intelligence might lead to some leverage, or we're looking at maybe existing business problems and asking, could AI be applied here? How do we pull the trigger and decide where those resources should go? Where these PhDs, where these data analysts and data scientists should, should be marshalling their forces? How do we make those expensive decisions with limited time and resources to, to prioritize properly? And again, I think Jason shined some good light there. Interesting interview. We did this actually at kind of the the Boston building here at 100 Binney Street in Boston where world.ai and and Big part of of kind of Facebook's AI folks on the East Coast are sort of based, hoping to visit their New York office at some point too. Uh, But fun interview. You can see in the actual text version of this on emerge.com, E M E R J. We always do full articles about all these interviews, so you can check that one out. We've actually got photos of kind of the the inside of the building with these folks here at Facebook. But the topic itself is eminently transferable. And again, these are the firms worth tuning into. I think that a lot of these lessons are going to click, and for people who are considering hiring, data science talent, or considering where to point the canon of AI in terms of making a difference in their bottom line, this will be more than useful. So without further ado, this is Jason Sundrum with Facebook's World.ai project. I'm Dan Fagella of Emerge, and you are listening to AI in Industry. Without further ado, let's roll right in. So yeah, Jason, we'll just get started with talking about building AI teams. We're here in the new Boston office. You guys are going to have you know six hundred and fifty folks here. What do you have two hundred now or something? Uh, yeah, I think two hundred fifty. So like moving quick. Yeah. And yeah. I, I was in your building twenty one on the West Coast with all your AI folks. Building AI teams is obviously critical in Facebook. I think for a lot of existing enterprises, it's pretty new. You know, being able to put together a data science squad that can actually get something done in a business, as opposed to a room full of PhDs we brag about but they don't do anything. When you think about building an AI team for an express business purpose to really get something done, what 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 goes through the minds of, of the folks who, who do that well in your mind?
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot of ingredients. I mean, I think, as you point out, there's uh, a lot of focus given to the people who have the PhDs. And for sure, they're you know a crucial part of the equation. But really having somebody who represents the stakeholders so that you can really figure out how are you going to deliver some, something that's really going to be valuable is important. And there's a bunch of other skills that become super important, especially at the scale that we're at. I think it was said probably five or 10 years ago about data science, like, you know, 80% of, t- of the time is cleaning the data, yeah, yeah. 20% of the time is the cool science stuff. I think, you know, that equation doesn't really change much with with AI. What you do is you still need data to train on, making sure that data is clean or cleanish uh, is an issue, figuring out what data you should be using um, is also an issue, getting labels is also an issue. And at the scale that you need to do that, there's a bunch of infrastructure you have to build. So when you're thinking about making a team, you need to make sure that there's some really strong engineers who understand how to move data around at the scale. You need to move it out and people who can be really comfortable at all levels of the stack so that, you know, whether you're having a low level issue with the networking card in your machine or if you're having issues of figuring out, well, is my model overfitting? You can kind of visualize things and kind of work at an incredibly low level. And, you know, those sets of expertise don't always live inside the same people. So team composition is definitely something you need to think
0: about. Yeah. And obviously, you know, for maybe Facebook that would be different for other firms, but you're talking about the volumes of data that that you guys are working with. Maybe that stacks a lot more need in, I don't know, data infrastructure or management or something than maybe some other firms would have. When you when you think about team composition, I think folks are aware that all right, a, a data scientist is different than a data analyst, is different than a machine learning engineer, is different than a whatever. But you also mentioned folks that represent the stakeholders. How do you go about crafting that? You know, we've got a, a division opening up or something, and now we've got to build that team composition. What are the kind of pachinko machine thoughts that go through to make the decisions as to who fits where?
1: I always look at the product manager as the person who speaks for the stakeholders. So making sure that you have a strong product manager who has spent time with the folks who are going to be the ultimate users of these tools to figure out, you know, what is it we should actually be delivering? What What's, what's the business problem we're actually trying to solve? they can have a really crisp articulation of what that is. You want the engineers to spend a lot of time with that person and to the extent possible also with the customers so they can really internalize those needs so that they understand that what they're doing is really solving a problem that's a business problem, not necessarily just a modeling problem. Once you have that product manager in place, you really need to make sure that you have, as I said, like this connection to, to infrastructure where necessary and also resources from the business to sort of spend the time getting labeled data that you need to make really great models.
0: Yeah. And sometimes that's going to mean shipping stuff to, you know, foreign nations to have folks label, whatever you got to label mm-hmm. or, you know, however else you need to enrich things. You mentioned, you know, having the, the product manager, that's going to really grasp the problem and, and beginning with that. So I, I take it when we're going to build team composition, it's with kind of the the central brain and with that person's brain being super informed, from like the customer's perspective and the business's perspective as to what exactly we're solving, then the team kind of gets constructed around that. Is that maybe a right way to think about it? If there's folks listening in from life sciences or financial services, is that still a model that holds or is that kind of a like a B2C app kind of world thing or is that pretty much a firm way to go about it?
1: I think you definitely need that that strong product and customer voice in the room. And if that's an official product manager role, or if that's just maybe one of your engineers is really just steep in the problem and they kind of have a product manager hat they can put on, but you you definitely need to make sure that voice is in the room. Um, And when you think about sort of delivering really great engineering products, you think about your iterations time, right? So you want to be able to move as fast as possible by like kind of refining what you're doing. And what I think about... A product manager is because you then have the customer in the room, you're able to make decisions much more quickly and move faster yeah, of
0: that. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I, I think to myself like, huh, what does that look like? You know, you know, I imagine, all right, if, if they really talk to the customer a lot, you know, nobody I know has been tapped on the shoulder by Facebook to like be on a panel or like do like a live stream of them using it or something, you know, like being in touch with the customer feels like, I don't know, kind of challenging. We've people in every now and again to be like find a regular way to loop people in online, Like, what, is, what does that look like?
1: I think depending on what you're building um, and the scale of what you're building, that could, that could look very different. So it could be you know, doing a bunch of research to understand um, things where you talk to individuals. It could be looking at a bunch of data for how people are using an existing product and how you want to sort of streamline some of those use cases. You know, if you're working in a new area, tapping
0: into an existing community, there's there's often strong voices that you can kind of be in touch with. Okay, cool. So yeah, I'm just thinking, you know, random like a retail bank is like I don't know, redesigning some facet of, of what they're doing in like a trading platform or something. You mm-hmm. know, perspective of the people who are actually in there using it for their business or for their personal life on a regular basis. And you're saying there might be sometimes voices or these like folks that, you know, run a site or run a forum and kind of live and breathe this stuff? And maybe they're like a good aggregate of like the sentiment of, of the market there? Are those like valuable sources for this project manager kind of person? Or you think of something else?
1: I think those are good resources for that kind of person. I think like figuring out how to how to balance all the feedback you get is often hard and you're getting a lot of feedback, which is why I think trying to be data driven about it is important. So if you can sort of say, okay, how many of my customers is this person a really good proxy for? That's important. I often find that. Sometimes the most opinionated voices are sometimes
0: the least representative. Um, mm. And and yeah, that's a challenge. That's an important point. Like, don't do the squeaky wheel thing. Yeah. Because yeah. it's there's an appeal to do that. But yeah, okay. Understood. So last little bit here on the team composition deal. I like this idea of kind of the central nexus around which we're going to construct things. You talked about folks that are familiar with the stack. going to depend on what business you're in because the stack will imply different things, I, I suppose. You know, what does that look like, I guess, to to assess sort of the... The stack, the technical ecosystem that we exist in, and then sort of fit folks that can integrate it in some way. Like, do we have to kind of get an understanding of where do our inputs come from, where do our outputs go to, and making sure that that kind of like the people who could technically speak betwixt those places can be hired and brought onto the team. You know, I guess I'm, I'm drawing a very rough conception of how I would imagine that, but you probably have a more refined one.
1: Um, yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with just the inner workings of your of your company's um, infrastructure, so that. You know, when you are running your machine learning models, there's a bunch of maybe cluster management software you might have to be familiar with the libraries that you're using. Like there may be some real minutia in there that you need to to know about um, that kind of expertise. But you know, fundamentally, when this you know the models that you build hit production, like you have to be familiar with your production infrastructure, or you have to have somebody who understands enough about your models to sort of put them in production for you.
0: Yeah, and I I would suspect that if you if you think as you're hiring, like, oh, you know, if if you're not crystal clear on what that is, you know, what kind of skills are going to need to be needed to get get it into production and all that, then probably like hold your horses on sort of like having all those interviews or whatnot until you maybe get a firm conception of what that is. It would seem like that has to come first in terms of clarity before you start building a big team. But maybe I'm wrong.
1: Um, I, th- I think once you've proven there's some biz- business value from the models that you're building you have a, a real lever to kind of get production uh, folks interested in shipping those models right so it's sort of one of these chicken or the eggs egg situations where it's like well I've got this amazing pipeline where I could plug in a model but I don't have a model um, or I have this amazing model and I have no way to connect it to users I think once you've got this sort of uh, model that performs super well there becomes a lot of incentive uh, and excitement to sort of connect this to production
0: um, yeah I know you know we've heard that when people are hiring data scientists you know people like to know that their stuff's getting used, right? Yeah. Um, that it's actually possible for big companies, some of who might be tuned in, very big companies that have enough profit margin to, yeah, hire what they need to. They can go get the fresh big degree folks out of the Carnegie Mellon's and Stanford's or, or even poach people. But if you're in an environment where your stuff's not getting used uh, and you can't say it's making a difference in day-to-day life and all your friends who work at Facebook are like, here's what my new app can do for yada yada, then you're going to have a tough time retaining folks. It sounds like you're kind of touching on that a little bit like people want to see it moving
1: yeah i mean i think uh you know there's obviously a lot of excitement in just doing modeling work right you know solving interesting technical problems is you know one of the reasons people become good at that is because they're excited by it however i think one of the reasons that people might leave a place would be that they are not able to like connect the things they're excited about to real business value and so they're they're basically seen as sort of peripheral to the business.
0: Yeah. And you, you probably can't feel that way for too long, especially when your friends with the same degrees are doing stuff that maybe feels more fun because it's hitting.
1: There's a huge demand for people with this, these skill sets yeah. out, out there. Yeah.
0: So, so it's, it's not, we've heard the lesson that it's, it's kind of the pay, sure. The perks, sure. But can we go home and be like, hell yeah, AI, like entering the world, like really doing it, that that's actually a, a big part of the appeal. Uh, for the tech giants, for example, yeah. and I imagine it will be for other firms as well. Um, cool. So we'll get into the the next question here. One of the sort of challenges that that folks in the enterprise juggle is where do we point the you know the the cannon of AI, so to speak. So if we're thinking about leveraging artificial intelligence, you know, we were talking before we were rolling that you know going in with the AI hammer and saying where are the nails is a very silly way of. Thinking about things, but I think when folks have a decent idea of what AI can do in terms of its capability range, mm-hmm. and they look about in their business and they say, "You know, maybe there's eight different places that really could be hyper valuable." What's the What's the thought process there? Because there's so many darn options. You know, how would a smart executive team go about those kinds of decisions with limited resources? And that?
1: I think the way we try to solve these kinds of problems here, which seems to work fairly well, is um, sort of solving this problem maybe in two ways so the from an executive perspective you know con- communicating what are the real pain points to the teams who actually have the skills um, is a great way to get some suggestions about what might be effective i think putting a lot of autonomy and trust in the teams who are building functionality or have the expertise to sort of shop around the company and say like we think we can solve these problems I think it can be both really empowering for those people and help you focus on what's really, really shippable. I do think that it's important though to do a good job of communicating what would be impactful for the for the company. So really think about, you know, if we could do anything, here's what we would want to achieve.
0: Yeah, like business impact first. Yeah,
1: understand. exactly. Start with impact and and, you know, work backwards from there.
0: Cool. So, I guess I'll just kind of riff off of this a little bit. You touched on something of making sure that the pain points are really clear to the people with the technical skills, because then they might have ideas as to, like, oh, well, if we have this kind of data kicking around, we might be able to. So, those ideas can even spurn from the data scientists themselves. I think often the challenge, you know, that, that we see is that your subject matter experts and your data science folks maybe they're not on the same page about that, and maybe the subject matter experts really understand the problem space but the data scientists aren't brought up to the same speed. And so that it's harder for them to generate the ideas because these folks are running the business. It sounds like you know you mentioned the project manager before, product manager before. If that's the center seed, and these people are around them, then they have to understand the problem because this, this person is the nexus of grasping that issue and what the heck we need to solve. Imbuing data scientists with the subject matter context to come up with solutions, that feels hard. But, but maybe they just need to be embedded into the team the right way. I don't know
1: yeah i mean i think there's different levels of skill at, at doing this right so you can imagine if you have a good problem in figuring out how to embed a product manager in the team is is maybe not so bad but if you're really just trying to you know go from zero to one and get a, a new initiative off the ground you know you don't necessarily know what the, the problem is so you're not necessarily sure who the product manager even is yeah, yeah you may have hired some you know research engineers who have the chops to do some amazing work but you're not exactly sure you know how to motivate them where to where to point them. And so I think, you know, getting off the ground is certainly a challenge. I think my solution to this is always just like, talk about the pain and talk about the business value and sort of see if you can find some kind of resonances there.
0: And and ensure, I guess that, you know, our technical data science folks and our subject matter boots on the ground, maybe customer facing or maybe business problem handling folks are in the same room for those, it sounds like.
1: Uh, yeah, I think the tighter the loops can be, the better off everybody else.
0: Tighter loops. That's yeah. a ni- nice enough way to kind of summarize it. So cool. Beginning with business impact and maybe not just thinking about that at a C suite level, but trickling that stuff down. Here are the pains. Here are the big opportunities. You know, from a data science brain and knowing all the resources you have access to, you got anything to add to this? And they might say, well, that looks like a bigger business impact, but, you know, there's no way we have, you know, we, we could. I don't know. Get the this, these kinds of data to actually solve that, so that that's got to stay on the shelf for now. And so it sounds like that that layer of data science expertise has to be part of selection in some way.
1: Yeah, and I, I also think like the role of managers on these teams are, is super important because those are the people who kind of understand both the business and the technology, and so they're able to draw some of these lines um, and help their team kind of like refine their 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 understanding of what's technically possible. So if you have a strong manager of an AI team, they should be able to sort of be in tune with what the business needs and sort of what is technically possible.
0: And the way they know what the business needs is by maybe being in those kind of higher level meetings with the other business right. leader folks, or just the more osmosis and those tight loops that they're in, they can trickle that down to the other folks. Yeah. So makes sense. Okay, cool. So with our last you know, couple minutes, I know that World.ai is kind of what you're doing here in Boston. And then yeah. there's going to be a substantial number of folks here working away on that same project. You know, we were talking before you were rolling about maps and roads and what Facebook is doing with with kind of global image data. A lot of people don't know that that's even a Facebook thing. Give us maybe a high level on World.ai, and then maybe we'll talk about some of the neat stuff it's allowing.
1: Yeah. Um, so I guess maps and Facebook are not necessarily the connection that most people draw when they think about Facebook. Um, but maps do actually show up in a bunch of our product services. So whether you're sharing your live location with a friend over Messenger, or you're checking into a place to see a map in our products, um, or you're asking for recommendations and a map pops up and, you know, your friends are able to say, go to this restaurant, or, you know, uh, here's a plumber I recommend, and all those things sort of will pop up on a map. Those, uh, those maps on Facebook are powered by basically Wikipedia of maps, which is OpenStreetMap. And we started a project in this office to say okay, OpenStreetMap is great, but there's places where we wish its coverage was better. Are there ways we can contribute to this amazing open data source that'll benefit both us and the rest of the world? And we started by looking at incredibly high-resolution satellite imagery. So these are like 30-centimeter pixels, which are basically the size of your laptop seen from space. And what we were able to do was actually make road predictions. So look for entire road networks and then post-process those predictions into contributions to this OpenStreetMap. So over the past year, we've basically mapped all of the roads in Thailand and contributed those back to OpenStreetMap.
0: And when you say predict roads, Mm -hmm. I guess in my mind, I I think about that in two ways. One could be like predicting the traffic on those roads. Another one could be predicting where they will be built. It would seem as though if we have the image data at the level of granularity of my computer here, Mm -hmm. then maybe... We're not as much predicting as we are just kind of refining what those curves are. What, what did you mean by prediction? Yeah. So
1: in this context, I really meant say like, is every is a given pixel of an image part of a road or
0: not part of a road? Okay. So these are existing road networks that we're trying to basically just label properly. Cool. And then being able to contribute that back into this grand open source sort of thing, which you guys are using the different applications. Yeah. What else is it in? So we got, we got roads. Mm-hmm. Pretty big deal. And it's, it's an interesting thing that you folks are, are working on that. Again, as you said, a lot of people don't associate that, but, you know, it's in the product. You got to do it. Yeah. What el- what else is uh, what else is neat about that? I guess what what is it going to permit that is worthwhile, interesting, exciting for you? I,
1: I think one of the things that's been really amazing for me is the impact of this work, not internally, but externally. So when there have been humanitarian aid efforts that needed to be mobilized because of a natural disaster, um, using our AI mapping technology, we're able to map out road networks and places so that aid agencies can actually deliver relief to the people who really need it. Without road networks, you don't really know how to get to people, where, where they live, where their
0: houses are, what are the routes. It's just the logistics are a real nightmare. And these are problems that need to be solved really fast. Yeah, so you're saying, you know, you can't just pull up, you know, like an Apple Maps or Google Maps in rando place in Thailand. Like, it's just not like, oh, cool, it's all there for me. Like, it's not. So you, you need to have these alternatives that it sounds like you can put in places that might not have that tech. Otherwise.
1: Yeah, it's amazing. When we think about the world, especially with these amazing mapping apps that we have, Tons it, of- it makes it seem like everything is already there. Well, when you live in San Francisco <laughs> or
0: Boston, it does yeah, yeah,
1: and if you live in a major population center, you, you're yep. very well served. Um, but it turns out that like a lot of the world is not super well mapped because there's not necessarily huge population density there, and sometimes those are the places where map- that maps can be the most impactful.
0: Yeah, hopefully you guys shuffle into India. I imagine you are to some degree already, but I know they're they're dealing with their whole AI and issues around how crazy they're networks are of, of communication, transportation.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, within the last year, there was um, this huge flood in Kerala, which has claimed a lot of lives. Yeah. And we were actually able to use our um, AI-powered mapping there to trace out the road network to help agencies deliver relief.
0: Cool. All right. Well, good to know a little bit on the world.ai side, and I appreciate the insights on the business side as well. Jason, that's it for time, but thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. and regular coverage of the AI applications of both the hottest startups here in the Bay Area, as well as what Fortune 500 companies are doing with AI today. Everything from marketing and advertising, business intelligence, to specific industries like finance and healthcare you can stay ahead of the curve and stay on the right side of disruption by visiting techemergence.com and when you're there make sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter on the left hand side of the page Uh, most of our podcast listeners get the episodes directly to their inbox every week you'll be joining tens of thousands of other business leaders who join us from all over the world to stay ahead of the curve of AI in their specific industry so that's techemergence.com I'm Dan Fagella this is AI and industry and we'll catch you next week